evening, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Card Game Cooperative, your remotely competent, remotely frequent podcast about Lord of the Rings, the card game, Arkham Horror, the card game, and Marvel Champions, uh, the three living card games by Fantasy Flight Games. I'm James. I'm one of your hosts tonight, and with me, as ever, is Will. Hello. How are you, sir? I am all right, thank you. Um, yeah. I've got the the old Sunday blues, but otherwise, you know, I'm all right. Are you in work in the morning? I am at work in the morning, yeah, yeah. Mm. So, you know, yeah, for the weekend. <laughs> Indeed. Also with us is Mike. Good evening. How are you doing? I am conscious. <laughs> Just, you know, we bring so much it, energy, don't we? It's yeah. that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, sun, Sunday evening and small child does, does not equate to lots of energy. Um, Simon is not with us uh, tonight, but we do have a special guest. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Ian. Hello. Uh, how are you this uh, this morning, as it is, I believe, with you? It is morning. Um, I uh, have more energy than I have for the past couple of weeks because there were no World Cup games um, today, so I didn't have to wake up at like 7 a.m. my time to watch anything. So. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very happy about that. Yeah, this... This this current World Cup has been very time zone friendly for the UK. Um, I, I do remember when I was uh, an 19-year-old undergraduate student, we had the uh, the World Cup in Japan and Korea, which rather unfortunately co- coincided with the period where we just finished exams uh, at the end of first year mm. of uni. So we would basically get up at about six, start watching the football and start drinking, which <laughs> does not <laughs> yep. leave you feeling well by <laughs> mid-afternoon. No. <laughs> Simpler times. Sure. Cool. Well, we'll be talking uh, a lot more to, to Ian in, in due course. Uh, but before we kind of dive too far into the main topic, uh, what's what's everyone been playing? Um, Michael, you look distracted, so I'll pick on you first. Cheers. Yes, distracted for trying to frantically look through uh, my notes to see what I have been playing. It's uh, mainly been Arkham, I think. Looking at it, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm currently in the middle of a uh, Innsmouth campaign, trying to get some thoughts on that as we're starting to think to March next year for maybe doing a bit of an Iron Man of it. And uh, I'm currently taking Trish through it solo, and uh, I've played half a campaign with Trish before, uh, Dream Eaters, and she really... I don't understand why I haven't played more with her. She seems very much a kind of style that I'd like, so uh, it's all working very well in this deck. Uh, trying the permanent for the first time that reduces your deck size by five and you get one of every card underworld support yes and then there's also another one where it increases your deck size by 10 and you set aside a little illicit deck and they've both got similar names and i'm using them both nice <laughs> so uh, that one is newer yeah. and i cannot remember what it is called because i haven't used it yet yeah whole purpose of it was to well yeah try out some new cards but also i'd seen as i was looking through the whole campaign i was wondering is alina really worth putting effort in to try and get in one of your decks and the like that's something i saw like the first deck i saw with her online was her with trish because she's so perfect for trish so i thought oh go on i'll give that a go and she hasn't hit the table alina hasn't hit the table once yet so that's not really <laughs> in line with the whole purpose of what i was trying to do but uh uh just finished horror and high gear which was as always a very fast scenario but uh yeah looking forward to the rest of that now 
Will, what have you been up to across the LCGs recently? Um, not too much since. When did we record the last one? What, two, three weeks ago? We did, soon. but I'm, I'm not. I'm, I think we might have skipped this segment because we were worried people might be just listening to find out about Fortune oh. and Folly and not want to hear us talking about Lord of the Rings for half an hour. Yes, because it was a, it was the spoiler thing. Not, it wasn't a regular episode. All right, well, I've no idea then. Um, <laughs> let's go with my. Uh, I've been doing the an- my anti-hero campaign in Sinister Motives. So I've been taking Scarlet Witch and Nebula through Sinister Motives in an attempt to gain the least amount of reputation points possible. Um, Because it says in the campaign guide, (laughs) you can get lots of them, but beware, have bad stuff. So uh, unfortunately, I think I ended up on 15 by the last mission. um, Because unfortunately, you generally stuck with about three victory points a mission, which I've seem to be very difficult to not get, which are essentially not let one of the two of them die um clear the little environment side scheme bit which is gets removed once you've cleared so many side schemes and minions anyway so that's really hard to not do um and then the third one generally bees is like uh, there's there's no side schemes left or there's no minions left one of the two um but otherwise in terms of leaving lots of threats on the main threat and as many acceleration tokens as possible um they're quite good at that because turns out both of them neither of them are the decks have got particularly good at thwarting, so I, I've started to struggle a bit with that. But uh, yeah, so I'm on Venom Goblin now, and I don't understand how I'm ever going to beat that, because I'm also doing it on Expert, <laughs> um, and that's just, that's mad. First first turn is, um, yeah, have half a dozen encounter cards each, and lots of threat, and neither of you are very good at removing it, and you're both quite slow builds, really, so yeah. How many... How many plays of Expert Ronan did you do before giving up? With, uh, mm, with Rocket and Groot, I think I must have been up to about 15 before I eventually... Okay, so you're going to no. go a similar number for Venom Goblin then. Maybe. I did <laughs> I did two and went, oh, I see, it's one of these again. Right, I need to be in a better mindset <laughs> for this. <laughs> so they're not bad. Like you say, I, had a, I came up with uh, quite a fun... Um, pairing because my nebula deck is essentially get Tigra out, give her honorary guardian and a guardian spear so she can kill minions. And my uh, Scarlet Witch deck is get Vision out and buff him up so he can do lots of stuff and then keep him healed. So on very the... thematic. Mm. I mean, if if Vision dies, do you then go insane and rewrite reality? <laughs> I mean, honestly, if Vision dies, we stop being able to thwart very well and we die that way. So it's it's pretty accurate. Um, but yeah, on the Sinister Six, because there are no minions, I didn't bother with Tigra, so I just upgraded Vision, and he was hitting the villains for nine or between nine and eighteen a turn, which was uh, very entertaining to just have him one shot the one shot the villains, um, which was very entertaining. And also, luckily, got rid of the threat that way. So no such luck in Venom Goblin, though. So we'll uh, we'll see. I'll let you know next time if it's gone any better. So if you're playing campaign have you got to the point where you can take an out of aspect aspect card unfortunately yes yeah i was hoping not to get that far down the down the tech tree but uh, i did yeah so did you did you consider taking some justice cards for Venom yes that, they both have lots of they both have three copies of something justicey so i did that campaign with Ms. marvel aggression and i took under surveillance as my out of aspect card so just being able to go in true solo, each of these three main schemes has a, a four higher limit before <laughs> it threats out was, was very nice. Hmm. That sounds good. Um, yeah, James. 
so I've been doing a few bits and pieces in preparation for tonight, which I won't mention. Um, other main thing I've been doing is uh, Marvel Champions. I like I picked up all the mutant stuff and then just hadn't got that much time to get it to the table. And I was like, right, I'm going to sit down and crack on through this properly. Um, so I took the the Storm precon against Mutant Genesis, and I think I beat the first three scenarios in 43 minutes combined. Um, <laughs> she is just ridiculous. She just smashes straight through everything. Um, so yeah, that that's been good fun. I've done the whole campaign well. I've done all of the scenarios. I haven't done the actual campaign because I haven't done the campaigny bits to link them together. I think yet. it takes forty-three minutes just to like set up an Arkham scenario. I mean, yeah, that, that, that's three champions. <laughs> that's playtime. Like that, you know. I'm, I'm stopping and okay, starting yeah. the clock at the beginning end of each game because I'm a nerd and I use an app and track how long I play games for. Um, and then Wow is here, so yeah. Wow. <laughs> um, but yeah, so so um, mostly that my, my my kind of next big thing is to uh, to actually build some of them in in other aspects because I'm not a great fan of the Colossus precon and I'm not quite convinced about the Kitty precon, so I'm going to try juggling stuff around there. And then on on Friday we should finally have Mojo. Um, Mojo's been out in the rest of the world for weeks, but the UK has been been missing it along with the Scarlet Keys. So uh, yeah, but how about you, Ian? Do you, um, well. I guess, as we haven't actually explained who you are, our, our listeners may not know. Do you uh, did you play any uh, any of these co-op living card games? <laughs> <laughs> I have been known to play some. Um, <laughs> yeah, so I mean, historically, I play. I came from the Lord of the Rings LCG community, <clears throat> although I haven't played any recently. Um, I do a podcast on Arkham Horror, the card game, called Mythos Busters. So not surprisingly, I've been playing lots of Arkham Horror, the card game, recently. Um, we do have uh, the Scarlet Keys here in the States, not to rub it all in your face. <laughs> so I've been, <laughs> so I've been uh, playing through that. I still haven't finished a full campaign yet, just because, you know, life has been busy. But yeah, I'm about through it, like four or five scenarios through one campaign. Um, which I'm playing with, uh, usually when a new campaign comes out, um, I do like a face check campaign, like my very first campaign, uh, with whoever the rogue is in that box, because (laughs) rogue is my favorite class. So in this case, it's Kaimani. Um, so I'm running solo Kaimani as the very first campaign. Um, and then I started a two handed campaign with, um, uh, God, I'm blanking on who I'm playing on the two-handed campaign. Um, Is it another two on one from side? The box? I have Daryl. Um, yeah, I have Daryl Simmons as kind of the Kluver, and then the killer. I'm um, going back in time and playing Akachi as like the battle mage. Uh, sorry, Daryl is the Kluver, and Akachi is like the killer battle mage build, which is a lot of fun. So I'm only through two scenarios on that. That's going well. Scarlet Keys is great so far, um, but there's like so much content in it. Like, I feel like I'm gonna have to play like three or four campaigns to really get a sense of everything <laughs> it has to offer. Um, <clears throat> as far as other LCGs, um, out of the out of the three, Marvel is the one I'm least familiar with. But I have been like after a good bit of time where I wasn't playing any Marvel, I have played some recently. Um, I'm like trying to catch up on the boxes I didn't play, so I'm. <laughs> Playing through Mad Titan's Shadow. I think that's what the, the Outnose box is called, right? Yes. Yeah. 
Um, so I'm doing like a two-handed uh, Scarlet Witch vision um, and hoping I can get a better result from them both than happened in the, nice. <laughs> the MCU version of those events. You only need one hero to survive to win a scenario, don't you? <laughs> yeah, true, true. Yeah, my, my wife and I did the same same two heroes for, for the Mad Titan Shadow nice. campaign. It seemed, uh, seemed an obvious thematic fit. Mm-hmm. We still don't have a um, what they called power up cards. The the events that you can play if you have two very team specific hi- team up cards. We don't have one of them for Vision and Scarlet Witch, do we? Nope. No. No. Okay. They in fact do not get on in real life. And I can't imagine we'll get one because we've had the Scarlet Witch pack and we've had the yeah. Vision pack. So where would you release yeah. it? Uh, print on demand. I don't know. Yeah, I, w- I would. I would quite like to see them do. Yeah, whether it was like a print and play, which appears at Games I mean, Enter yeah. in a month time or whatever, you know, something. But I, 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 I think it would be really good to have some kind of mechanic which basically says, if your signature ally is appearing as a hero in this game, you can put this card in your deck to replace the signature ally, mm-hmm. so that your signature ally isn't just a wild resource. Whether that be a team up card or just some other kind of thematic thing and yeah just do like a pack that's just one of them for every hero hmm. I think that'd just be a fun thing and yeah it probably wouldn't sell the volume slash fit there every pack is an entry point mm-hmm. philosophy enough for a full thing but yeah I think it could be like a fun as I say print and play or whatever and then I'm I'm, I'm sure Games Enter would produce them eventually because that just seems to be what happens now. It's basically what they've done with Parallel Investigators in Arkham, isn't it? They've yeah. kind of slowly had this idea and done it for half a dozen investigators, then released it as an official product. And so far, that's it. It'd be really cool if we got something else for more investigators. But yeah, we'll, we'll see where that goes, if anything. Cool. Well, I think we'll move on to the news. Uh Michael, I believe we have uh, one brief but very important piece of news. Uh, Yeah, we have our competition results from uh, the Fortune and Folly giveaway uh, that we announced in our last episode. So uh, thanks to Arkham Chronicle for providing us with this to give away. And we've been getting a few winners throughout the last week. People who uh, correctly established that by walking around a casino and shooting people in the head... William Yorick slash me was the investigator who had by far the lowest alarm level. Yes, that was the answer to the competition question, yes. <laughs> Which is, yeah, just it was so hilarious as we were playing through that. And our winner is Adam S. So we'll be getting in touch with you and uh, figuring out how to get this product to you before Christmas, hopefully, if Woo. postage well, allows. Yeah, we will, we will try and post it before Christmas, I think. Um, yeah, I, I, I think the the state of the uh, the postal strikes over here means that things actually reaching people is uh, not something I want to try and guarantee on air. Apparently, a lot of people are posting stuff this time of year. It's weird. I don't know who would have thought all about. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah I am it. because um, yesterday um, DHL delivered something ridiculous, like a hundred and fifty lo- long extended party packs to my house for the uh, the big group order and I now need to try and get them to people mm. um, unfortunately at least two of the packs were in French so I also have to go back to the printers and go uh, can we have the right ones please 
But anyway, I'm sure nobody's listening in to hear me complain about the Postal Service. Um, I would imagine most people are listening because they want to hear us talk to Ian. So, uh, yeah, uh, Ian Martin uh, of The Grey Company, The Mythos Busters, um, The First Age uh, expansion for uh, for Lord of the Rings, the uh, forgotten the names of them, Escape from Khazad-Dum and Minds of Moria, because they're on the show notes, uh, worked on that. And most recently, uh, Designer of Fortune and Folly uh, has decided to join us tonight so uh thanks so much for coming along ian um yeah thanks we will just me. barrage you with questions but feel free to <laughs> ignore <laughs> them or you know add in things which you think are more interesting um but yeah i i like to go in, in chronological order um we did this before we got we got caleb on the week that rise of red skull released and it's like yeah everyone's excited about this brand new product let's go back and talk about lord of the rings five years ago um, so <laughs> certainly, I, I think for you know for for a lot of people, um, you know, my my first awareness of you was uh, back when you were doing Tales from the Cards, and you you decided to produce an entire First Age expansion for Lord of the Rings. So a whole set of cards, a whole list of which of the official cards you could or couldn't use, or should or shouldn't use, and an entire sphere. Um, how much did you have to drink when you decided that that would be a good idea? <laughs> <laughs> uh, none, actually, but I will say that this was, yeah, I'm pretty sure this was pre-kids before I had my first kid. Um, so there's a little bit more time on my hands. Um, and I really, you know, design was always something I'd been interested in as a kid. Like I designed my own board games that I wanted to exist that didn't exist. Um, and after a long period in my twenties of doing other things and deciding I wasn't going to spend my time on board games like Lord of the Rings LCG is really what brought me back into gaming. Um, so as I got more into more into that community, I was like, I really want to design, uh, my own like custom stuff for this game since I love it so much. Um, I designed like one, um, scenario called into fangorn which um ironically ended up being the name of an official scenario later <laughs> but my version this was like my first stab at it so it has a lot of warts let's say if i go back and look at it um but after that i was like okay i want to take on something bigger because i tend to be pretty ambitious about these kind of things and when i was thinking like in my head i was like obviously ffg is probably never going to be able to do a first stage expansion of their own um because of licensing reasons so this would be a good area for me to really jump in and provide something like a that i want to play and b maybe other folks in the community will want to play that they'll never be like an official version of so seemed like a good area to jump into um but yeah it was a lot of work <laughs> a lot a lot of work for sure <clears throat> And yeah, I mean, do you, obviously, as you mentioned, kind of pre pre kids, you had a bit more time on your hand, but you know, how, how, how did the, the expectation of taking on that kind of massive project and, and the reality compare, would you say? Um, hmm. You know, like once I'm kind of in the process of designing something, like I think the actual kind of day-to-day -day, like logistics of just designing it like prevent me from thinking too hard about how it will be received or <laughs> I think it was also a different time period because um like pretty much my only contribution to the community at that point yeah was just the Tales from the Cards blog which was pretty well received um but I don't think I thought too much about like 
are people gonna like this like i mean i hoped they did but really like it first just started like what what are the kinds of things that i would like to see and go from there um i i had an idea that it would be a lot of work but i think and i'm sure other folks who have taken on custom custom um content have had this experiences that there are aspects of it that you when you're first starting to design custom cost content you don't realize like these are the parts that are going to take up big chunks of your life um designing and it's not even so much designing cards it's looking for art is a huge piece of it like <laughs> that takes up so much time um uh, doing play testing because i really wanted to make sure i was doing play testing for it so finding people to do play testing and making changes based on that and just finding errors so <laughs> like the actual initial design part is not the largest chunk of time it's all this other stuff that comes in and like refining it is is really the big time suck i think if you could go back now knowing what you know now and give yourself a piece of advice for that first for the first set of designing that you did is that what would it what would it be if there's like a really obvious <laughs> oh really shouldn't have done um, that <laughs> <laughs> i have now learned that this mm. is a much better way to do it Take this gift <laughs> of knowledge. that's a good question i mean i think especially for that because i did so much of it um on my own i mean pretty much everything on my own like bringing others in earlier to provide feedback and input like is always helpful like I'm a firm believer that although we often think of, I mean, just different art forms in general, whether it's someone writing a book or like doing artwork or designing something, we often think of it like this individual person is uh, like working alone in a room and they're just a genius and they created this thing. But like, I think anything creative benefits from having other people's like perspectives and getting their input and feedback and everything that I've ever designed is better because other folks came in and, and provided another view on it, um, another set of eyes. So yeah, bringing people in earlier. And I think the one, the, the one simple thing that a lot of folks who do custom content, I think learn as they design more and more is learning the places where you can keep it simple. Like you can usually spot someone's first custom content and you can see this in my into Fanghorn, uh, when it's just every card is like, uh, uh, you know, paragraphs of text, <laughs> like <laughs> just trying to fit the kitchen sink, everything into a single card. Um, and especially for me, like I tend to like very, like, let's say interesting or kind of creative effects, like figuring out what wacky stuff I can do. Um, but the side effect of that is sometimes you end up with lots and lots of text to try to make that work. And so finding places where sometimes simpler is better and you can accomplish the same effect just with, a more simple version of that effect on that note from from the first age content i do love the relentless keyword that's that's something mm. i wish we'd got in the in the official game so i think i mentioned this on our immune to player card effects episode but for anyone who, who hasn't played it it was it was essentially a keyword on an enemy so they're not immune to player card effects and therefore none of your toys work you can do stuff to them you just can't stop them attacking uh, which yeah, I, I just felt it was a it, it was a really nice flavorful flavorful thing. I think it was on was it Karkaroth? I don't know on some big mm -hmm. beast. But yeah, it, it it just provides an interesting space where you can still interact with a card and do fun things, but you also have limitations and it, it poses a new challenge. And yeah, it's just 
very simple because it's just one word on a card rather than that. Yeah. If I reduce the font size enough, <laughs> I can get another effect on here. <laughs> <laughs> right. People have to use magnifying glasses to, to, to read it all. But yeah, the, like the relentless, for example, is very much a reaction to um, stuff I talked about with my fellow host on the Grey Company or even other folks in the Lord of the Rings community at the other point who would sometimes just get frustrated with immune to player card effects. Like, let me do things. Like, I want to play my cards. <laughs> I want to play my cards in a card game. Um, and it's just interesting to see in, like, Arkham, for example, how their solution to that was, like, the elite um, trait on enemies and being able to use that as a little bit of a toggle of, like, Okay, certain player cards they can affect elites, and so, but you can still do things to affect elite enemies. It's just it's a little bit more targeted instead of a, just a blanket like you can't do anything to this enemy. Yeah, and if they bring out an effect like that, it's going to be because it's something like Azathoth, and you shouldn't mm-hmm. be able to. Right. In, you, yeah. know, you, you shouldn't be able to handcuff Azathoth. <laughs> no. <laughs> cool. So. Obviously, after uh, you know, after you did that, a few years later, you you got to work on on official content for uh, for Lord of the Rings. Do you know, do you think that the kind of the the independent fan led stuff you did led into that, or you know, well, just tell us kind of yeah, what was the the whole kind of process by which that came about? Yeah, I'm not sure honestly. Like I know um, from having talked to some of the folks at FFG at time and at times, and now knowing um, <laughs> my former co-host at uh, Mythos Busters, who's now an FFG designer, that they um, they really try to avoid and actually don't play custom content for the games that they design for obvious reasons because they don't want any like implications that they took um designs from someone so i i i don't know the exact story of of why in particular i was picked to work on this official content and if the custom content um had any part of it what i do know is that at the time i was brought in um caleb was involved in several other projects at that time so he really needed someone else to come in and and help um do this design work on these moria packs um and uh, what I do know also is that I had been involved in playtesting Lord of the Rings for a very long time at that point, so he didn't know me through that um, and 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 helping design in that respect um, through providing lots of playtest feedback. I think I started playtesting for Lord of the Rings Ringmaker, I think, is around when I started. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, he approached me um, and wanted to know if I would be interested in helping out in, in designing this. So... At that point, he had created some initial designs for the cards, so he really needed me to come in and um, kind of fill in the rest that he hadn't designed yet, and also take a look at the ones he had already designed and, you know, make any tweaks that I thought they might need, um, and then really kind of complete the design process of those packs in that way. And then once I was all done, kind of handed them back to Caleb, and he, he handled the uh, kind of playtesting of those and then making any changes to the cards that came out of playtesting. So that was kind of how that process of those Moria packs worked out. Because it was it was quite an unusual product for what I remember in that rather than it being something brand new, there were there were it was kind of either cards we'd literally seen in mm-hmm. the Khazad Doom cycle or kind of reworked uh, sorry, Khazad Doom Dwarf Elf cycle, Khazad Doom box, or yeah, like slightly reworked versions. So 
you know, how do you think that was helpful as, as kind of a, a first project that rather than just being given a completely blank slate and not knowing what to do, it's it's quite a quite a limited process, or or did you find that sort of restrictive as a as a creator? A little both, honestly. Like I, I think it was helpful to um, just one. Like there, there was some work that had already been done on it, so I was coming into it at that point. And yeah, it was a little bit like the way those packs are structured. Is they're really a lot of the effects are effects people have seen before in the game, but they're just like tweaked or they're adapted differently for the 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 new format of people being able to kind of compete against each other. Um, so in those ways, it's like, obviously I had been playing the game for a long time at that point. Like, so it was like my wheelhouse, right? Like it's, it's effects that I know it's the kind of design that I know. So in that, in that way it was, um, kind of a nice training wheels, I guess you could say. Um, but yeah, I, I think the challenge was on the other hand, um, it is a different mode necessarily than like normal Lord of the Rings. Um, and also, so a different type of design. So I was very used to designing, like you come up with a scenario idea, you like flesh it out from beginning to end, like uh, through my own custom content. Like I was, that was kind of the process I had worked out, but this is very different where you're almost like designing these individual pods that people can use to build like these, um, almost competitive decks against each other. So, so it was kind of a little bit outside my wheelhouse in that respect. So learning how those worked and I really studied um, the original versions of those packs a lot to kind of see how those pieces came together and worked to, to figure out how I could um, fit into that. And, and yeah, there was a little bit also that the other challenge was just in a, in a scenario you're designing from beginning to end, like you can kind of go a little bit as wild as you want, like, people have played my first stage scenarios um like i have one where it's basically like a tower defense scenario so it's almost like playing a different game um so i usually like introduce some mechanics that are kind of changing the game in some way but with these packs it's very much like we're delivering the core lord of the rings experience um that's really kind of the mission of these packs um, because that's what you want players to kind of be able to assemble for each other and had you played the the Merkwood constructible versus mode scenarios at the point you were working on the the, the Khazad Doom ones? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I had played those ones um, and gotten a chance to play those in person actually, which is nice because <laughs> I'm sure a lot of us are familiar with sometimes a lot of our play of. Um, these these cooperative LCGs is in solo or maybe even just um, like a few folks that we know. But around that time, they had some events at the local game store that I went to. So I got to play with those. I'm pretty sure I can't remember. I, I might be making this up, but I'm pretty sure like for one of these events, like um, C Stan from uh, Cardboard of the Rings was on my team. Yeah, I think we were on the same team. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, <laughs> so that was fun. Yeah, you want him on your team, not yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we were okay. I think we lost though. So I kept having this feeling like it was probably me, right? Like C stand didn't make his lose is probably me. <laughs> I think that was a, yeah interesting how so many of the cards are recognizable uh, from the cycle that it came out and. I, I feel like this, the, these um, 
co-op competitive cooperative scenarios that were released are unique because you're kind of designing scenarios for players to almost design themselves as well it's mm-hmm. kind of like going to be that two tiers of it so uh yeah was, do you know if it was conscious decisions to be having so many of the cards be uh repeated or repeated with changes so that people could set up the scenario and they'd recognize a lot of it immediately rather than having to read through all 100 odd cards in great detail they'd They'd know. They'd see like the watchful eyes card, and they'd have that twist in their stomach, and they you know, yeah, it's like this yeah, is gonna you're be a dealing good with one. that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. That that definitely was a part of it. Um, that that kind of design goal of wanting players to like, if they are playing this at an event, that they can quickly, because because part of the process is like players kind of have to look through and choose which of these. I'm calling them pods, but they're just like sets of, of which sets of the cards they're gonna use. So. Obviously, if things are too complicated or unfamiliar, it might take a long time for players to really make that choice and and figure out which way they're going to go. So they, the effects needed to be kind of simple, um, and each set needed to really be synergistic with each other. That, like, let's say you have these goblins that they need to be doing goblin-type things, and they kind of work together in that way. So, yeah, I was designing little mini-sets, which, I mean, you kind of do when you're designing an encounter set for a regular Lord of the Rings scenario, but it's, like, almost a more condensed form of that. Is there a particular set of sets that you uh, designed that you went, ah, yes, if you put these three together, that's going to really screw people over. Um, (laughs) We'll see if if they figure out which three they are. Um, not that I can remember. I don't think there were any like, oh, the, these are the ways to go, but there's certainly like combinations you can put together. Um, I, I think even more so than the combinations, what I, what I remember the most and had the most fun designing were like the, the different quest stages, um, particularly the Balrog quest stages, um, figuring out how to make, balancing those was the interesting challenge of like, how can I make each one of these like interesting enough that it's actually a tough choice for um, players to choose like, Oh, which one am I going to use against my opponent and like figuring out different ways to flavor the ball rug essentially. <laughs> um, that, was, that was probably my favorite part of the design. You weren't tempted to go for a Balrog with wings and Balrog without wings. As two <laughs> <laughs> and you just start a fight at the table. Yeah. <laughs> Presumably, you must have uh, tested it with people, like when, or or have just played it since. So, have you have you come across a, a a situation where someone else has designed an encounter deck for you that's beaten you, and you've sat there on the table and gone, "Damn me for designing these cards to be so difficult." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I got the chance to play um, the Moria packs with people, um, and I have not one every single time so yeah there, there's definitely combinations that people have come up with that have stumped me so i really like that mode i want to play that mode more because it's it's such an interesting way to play lord of the rings for sure as long as you remember to take the quest with you i was gonna say we, we <laughs> <Yeah>. got the <laughs> first ones released that were kind of a reflection of the mirkwood cycle and then mm-hmm. we've had yours that's kind of a reflection of the casa doom and it was feeling like maybe there was gaining momentums so we were reflecting each of the cycles but uh yeah Unfortunately, we've only got the two so far. We can keep our fingers crossed. <laughs> yeah, hopefully they're as with many things in in Lord of the Rings. Like I, yeah, like like with the nightmare packs. I wish those had been finished for the uh, the saga expansions. But yeah, yeah, 
and in certain cases i think those packs like if the if the game had continued longer in terms of like official support i'm sure there probably would have been more packs of those mm-hmm. i don't know if it's a question for ian or everyone but what do we think is the future for lord of the rings for released content since it's officially closed we have already had I think it was the Dreadnought scenario released after it was officially closed, or was that before I that? I believe so. So, yeah. could it be the occasional standalone we're getting every couple years? Is that well? I mean, that would be enough in comparison to a game that's completely dead. That would definitely be enough. Uh, <laughs> I suspect it's going to depend a lot. You know, we. It seems pretty obvious that we're getting the whole of the saga, in the two boxes in one box you know I, yeah. I can't imagine they would just do fellowship and not do two towers and return <laughs> of the king and kind of i think based on i think caleb essentially hinted that look at the starter decks and see which cycles don't have any cards taken from them for reprints and you've got a pretty good guess at reprints so i, I think it looked like we're getting Dream Chaser and was it Ravanian Cycle printed in the same way that Angmar has been. So that's probably kind of a good couple of years if they do a cycle reprint and a saga reprint each year. So I feel like they'll probably just see how those sell mm-hmm. and that kind of gives them enough time to gear up into a yeah, we probably just put in the kind of studio work to just rebox another existing product or actually we're still getting loads of sales maybe this is worth putting some design resource into because um, yeah i i think if they just brought out like a standalone a year or something like that people would buy it but i don't know how much how much effort that is from their side to yeah yeah to make versus just yeah kind of just graphic design work to rebox something yeah, I um, for my part, I don't have any insider knowledge in this respect, but yeah, that's kind of my take on it, is that I think they're probably going to see how the reboxes sell, and then decide from there if there's something else they want to do. But yeah, I, I would love to see more standalone quests. I, I think that's a good way to deliver more content if, if they don't want to do bigger content development for it. Defend the village of the Southlands, steal the MacGuffin. I, <laughs> I mean, I didn't want to dig up Rings of Power in front of James again, but I, I was under, <laughs> a, I was under an assumption that they might, they might start trying to push, push things a little more around that, just mm. to try and tread the water, seeing as it was sort of Lord of the Rings was back in sort of the, the main, main popular culture, um, which didn't seem to happen. So they don't have to directly use those characters from the Amazon TV series. There's enough of a hype around Lord of the Rings that they could just yeah, yeah, go but do it, that in some capacity. But uh, uh, Yeah, I wondered if it was going to be a cool, we're, we, like I say, we're re-releasing the next two boxes or what, whatever it would have been, just to put them out around the same sort of time to see if that was, that would to gauge a bit more interest and maybe get some new players and maybe that had, I don't know, but it, it seemed to all be a bit quiet on the Western Front, so... Here's a, here's a new elf starter deck where uh, Elrond and Galadriel have been subtly uh, subtly had their art changed to look uh, look more like the Amazon <laughs> series. You can make some custom cards. <laughs> Get on it. <laughs> I mean, George has been complaining. My wife has been complaining to me for years about the fact that the 
the Gen Con alt art Galadriel they did. She reckons it looks like Scarlett Johansson, and I I, I keep meaning to slip a Legolas in here into the deck that's just Hawkeye on the art. <laughs> <laughs> sort of wait for the double take as she draws it. <laughs> oh, so, did anyone have any any more questions about Lord of the Rings before we move on to uh, to Arkham then? I'm uh... Ready to get jumping on Arkham, okay, I think. So, yeah. <laughs> Arkham, you know, the uh, the the scenario on, on everyone's lips right now. Um, Ian, tell us more about Consternation on the Constellation. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I, I assume you sat down and just thought, Defiance is too good. How can we screw over people who are playing Defiance? <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, so, the consternation on the constellation, um, for those who aren't familiar, was the scenario that Mythos Busters put out for, oh god, a Gen Con back before the pandemic hit. So, it must have been 2019, probably, I'm guessing. Um, <clears throat> but we had originally brainstormed the ideas for that scenario in a Mythos Busters episode where, like, each of us had to bring, like, a theme or a type of enemy or story beat, stuff like that. Uh, but then I kind of took the lead on the design of implementing that. And yeah, I, I think uh, my co-host Scott came up with the actual um, mechanic of like, what if the bad stuff tokens actually do something good for you? Um, so that's how we started <laughs> implementing that into the scenario. Um, but I th a lot of the core of that scenario really designed itself in terms of like, how can we make a boat sink <laughs> and have these locations <laughs> represent that? So, yeah. And it's gotten pretty good reception, so I'm pretty happy with how that one played out. And given your, your comment about Lord of the Rings and, you know, wishing you'd brought more people in earlier, um, I guess doing a, a four-man live live on-air brainstorm to get started is mm -hmm. a, a, very, <laughs> a very different extreme. Yeah, for sure. That helps a lot. And is it very pleasing whenever one of the aspects of that scenario you see coming into the official game itself, even though you know you know, the mm -hmm. design team haven't played Consternation because of the kind of self-imposed rules they've got, but well, you, you I'm sure it must be satisfying. If, <laughs> if, if they haven't played it, then uh, <laughs> questions to be asked. Yeah, yeah. It's. A, I mean, if if nothing else, it's a nice little validation of like that. That idea is not completely crazy because they <laughs> are using it in the official game, yeah. so it must have some water to it. Yeah. Yeah, it's really interesting listening to that that episode with the design process and having kind of four completely separate ideas and working through that all to come together. And it's it's really good when we get interviews of people who. Uh, yeah, across different podcasts where we get to see the design process as well. And uh, but there, that I think that episode is particularly unique because it's happening then and there as you're going through it. Uh, are you are you still working on your island tower defense survival, whatever it was? We are, we are, yeah. Um, so we did use the similar process for that one. Um, Nick was actually we, the lead on that um, before we knew that FFG was going to poach him for us <laughs> from us because um, we're like, oh, we should switch it up, switch it up. Since I did it last time, um, we'll let Nick do it this time. But yeah, so he got it pretty far along, and then obviously he moved on and couldn't work on anymore. So um, I've been working on, you know, we've done some more playtesting and getting it closer to where we want it to be for the final product. Yeah. Um, but 
in this kind of design environment, it's nice because we have um, like a couple of uh, folks in the Mythos Busters, like Sean and Justin, who are not really interested in doing like the design part of it. But obviously, they've played a lot of Arkham and they're good playtesters. And uh, Sean is always a good salt check of like, oh, is this mechanic too <laughs> difficult or too far? <laughs> How salty is it making him? <laughs> and then we can figure out whether it needs to be scaled back. Um, and when Nick and I did design together, we worked very complimentary together as designers because I think we approached the game in similar ways. So, yeah. Stuff. We uh, we look forward to that one appearing, uh, hopefully before too long. Um, but yeah, Mike, I think you'd you jotted down the first few questions about fortune and folly. So do you want to kick off with those? So I'm not just stealing all your questions. Um, yeah, sure. So I think kind of. Uh, it's kind of like opening it up, starting it. How how do you think the reception's been for this first official Arkham scenario that you've designed? Uh, have you been speaking a lot to the players at in-game events that you went to? And how did how do you feel it's gone down? Um, as far as I've seen, it seems to have a really good reception, and it's always one of those weird things. Like once you design something, you're not sure how like how much are people are being nice, and they just don't want to be mean to me <laughs> about something <laughs> I design. But but no, like even in some of the forums I've seen on like Reddit or Discord, people the reception has been really positive for it, which I'm really happy about, honestly. And even at um, I was at Arkham Knights where the scenario debuted for the first time, so it was a little bit surreal just looking at this room of like a hundred plus people, almost two hundred people playing a set, something you designed, um, and having fun with it, and having those groans or those like shouts of excitement, um, and getting to talk to some of the people who who really liked it a lot. So yeah, I'm really happy with how the reception's been so far. Did you get to play to Arkham Knights, or were you, or were you just wandering around and giving out unhelpful hints and tips? <laughs> <laughs> uh, both, actually. I, I was actually playing it, uh, playing like a three-player run of it, um, and uh, I was playing with Nick actually and uh, and, and Justin. Um, and then during our during some of our like down periods of the game, I'd go walk around and like see how other people were doing with it. So a little bit of both. <laughs> And um, so I'm sure throughout the majority of the design process and uh, playtesting process, you didn't have any of the art or any of the kind of like visual elements that you're expecting of it. And then, yeah, what did you think to the final product when you saw it, whatever, for the first time? Did it kind of look like what you imagined or did it look different to what you imagined or...? Um, it, the end product is amazing. Um, I'm always I'm always pretty impressed uh, by by most of the art that comes through for <laughs> Arkham Horror the card game. Um, but especially, you know, sometimes uh, Arkham Horror reuses um, some art pieces from older Arkham Files games. Um, uses some pickup art essentially. Um, but for uh, Fortune and Folly, it was all new art with the exception of one piece. Which is pretty. I was pretty happy that I got the opportunity to have all this new art coming in, and it was all amazing. Um, you know, having done playtesting um, for stuff I have designed and stuff I haven't designed, I'm always amazed how big a difference it has to have that final art. Like, I mean, the game effects are the same, but the difference between having art there and no art—it's such a striking like like because. I had finished playtesting for Fortune and Folly, I want to say April 
um, of this year. Uh, and then so usually, as often happens when I finish designing something, I don't even look at it for like months and months <laughs> afterwards. Because when you play test something, you just get so sick of it. At least I do. I'm like, I never want to play it again. Uh, but then actually getting to play it at Arkham Knights with the full art, I, it was just such a cool experience. I'm like, oh, this is pretty good. <laughs> I'm having a good time <laughs> with this. So, But um, I think the first time I had seen the art was... Uh, over the course of the design and a little bit afterwards, like um, Maxine, uh, the designer of Arkham, would would send me like messages like, hey, you want to see some more art from Fortune of <laughs> Folly? To which I would reply, yes. And then um, she would send those over and uh, I would just... it To answer your question, it was very much matching what I had pictured in my head. Um, and I was always impressed. Part of the design process, would I, I had to write all the art briefs for all the cards, so kind of capturing for the artist what I pictured in my head. But still, I mean, these art briefs are not like extensive documentation. It's like three sentences, four sentences at most, maybe for each art piece. You can only convey so much. Uh, but the fact that these artists were able to take those and and get so close to what I imagined in my head. Or maybe add some pieces where I didn't imagine that, but I, I, I wish I had imagined that. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm very happy with the final art for Fortune of Folly. So was that your first time writing art briefs for, for, the, for the cards? Yes, yes, yeah. That was my first experience writing art briefs. Yeah, for sure. Is it just like unsuspecting uh, casino staff about to get shot in head by William Yorick? <laughs> yeah it was it was it was such an interesting process because they did give me like the templates that they or examples that they had done in the past so i got to see like the art brief for i want to say like the you know the all art boromir from um Lord of the Rings, where it's like stuck with arrows. Um, <laughs> so I, I saw an example of, I'm sure it was probably Caleb who had wrote, written it. So just seeing, they just gave me some examples so to see how, how to write those things. But, but yeah, um, like I said, having to convey what's in your head in so few sentences. Um, and then also... Uh, something I was very cognizant of, of that I was trying to pay attention to is making sure like the subjects of the art that there's diversity there um, in terms mm -hmm. of like who's represented in the art um, and just taking those considerations into account. So there's actually a lot that goes into it um, in, in trying to figure out what, what makes these art pieces really tick. You can't just write big tentacles exploding and hope for the best. Yeah, <laughs> over and over for each for each card. <laughs> There's definitely a consistency amongst the artwork in the cards, like with the uniform mm. of the staff and stuff like that. Was that also work from you, or was that the artists collaborating with each other, coming up with that consistency? Or yeah, that was that was really I want to say mostly on FFG's part. Like I had um, part of that process is uh, for the art briefs is you include um, references for the artists of like, hey, here's a picture of some uniforms, you know, or if you're talking about a relic, like here's some pictures of like ancient relics to use as a reference. So I had included some for uh, casino uniforms that I liked. 
Um, and I think Maxine was like, okay, that's, that's cool, but I think we can do better <laughs> what she was right about in terms of like the examples I had found. So she kind of worked with some of the, uh, like art and graphic design people at FFG to come up with that kind of like uniform design and then conveyed that to the artists for them to, so that they were all using the same kind of, um, uniform design for the casino. You didn't think about getting your, your inner stick man drawing outs and, uh, <laughs> Try and portray it that way. Yeah, they don't. They don't want me anywhere doing actual. Anywhere near doing actual art. So. I'd say there's, there's, there must be quite a fun quiz in that. If you could get, if you could get the, the, the artwork and then the, the art briefs and then do it as some sort of quiz and read the art brief mm. out to someone and see if they could guess what the, uh, the artwork it's related to is. Yeah, that's little, good that, yeah. That'd be a fun little game. Pictionary. Show. Pictionary, yeah. but for LCGs, yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think one of the primary things about the Fortune and Folly scenario, if I'm ever describing it to someone, is the the feel and the theme of it. I think that's the thing that draws most people in, it being a heist in a casino, just straight away so many people get what the scenario is about. And I think, yeah, really glad to see that the artwork has kind of supported that and had that whole feel come through for the while you're playing it as well. So, yeah, more than everyone on that. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I guess if we're kind of thinking a bit more about the the mechanics of the the scenario, were there, you know, were there any sort of games other than Arkham that, um, that you know, you, you had inspiration from? I mean, uh, like an example which leapt out to me uh, first time I saw it was Doomtown, which is another game where you've got mm. cards that do stuff but also have suits from a standard deck in, you know, yeah, just kind of curious what the the thoughts were that, that kind of gave you those those central mechanics yeah so it came from the inspiration came from a few different places um like like when i was thinking about designing the kind of um stealthy heisty alarm type mechanics uh, I was really inspired even more so than tabletop games by like video games, like thinking back with my experience of playing like Metal Gear Solid back in the day and how like enemies would spot you and then you'd hide behind something and then they wouldn't know you're there anymore. And <laughs> so just taking some of those experiences were is a big ex- inspiration. Um, I would love a cardboard box asset that you could hide in to reduce your amount of <laughs> That would be excellent. <laughs> we got the uh, cash trolley. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the, yeah. Yeah, the cash car was pretty much my version of the cardboard box. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. I was like, there needs to be some form of cardboard box. Probably can't do a cardboard box. Oh, maybe there's a, there's a cash car in the casino. Um, and then in terms of the gambling mechanics, Actually, I went through a few iterations of those. I mean, all the mechanics I went through a few iterations of. Um, and the way I often tend to design things as a designer is I kind of, in my initial drafts, just throw everything at the wall. Like the most complicated versions of everything. <laughs> um, kind of just a, anything I can imagine, any wish list for this scenario, just throw it in. Um, and then so a lot of my design process and playtesting from that point just becomes cutting and cutting and cutting and simplifying and refining. Um, and so that's very much what happened with both the stealth mechanics and the the gambling. So um, for the gambling mechanics, originally I had 
um, just kind of had different mechanics for for each location depending on whether whether it's a roulette table or, or poker um, and then I kind of worked on refining those more and more <clears throat> um, and having you know periodically I would have uh, meetings with Maxine where we kind of talk about where it's at and help pick her brain um, and then I think at a certain point it was actually um, Nate French who um, has a, a big fancy title FFG now I think like head of creative <laughs> design or something like that but you know he's the uh, one of the designers of um, Arkham Horror the card game and obviously designed Lord of the Rings as well so goes way back anyway the other thing about nate is he's an avid uh, poker player like he loves poker and plays <laughs> so much poker um and so he was the one who actually su suggested like what if there were actually like these the game icons were taken off of um what i was using before and put in put on the encounter cards themselves and so maxine was like well you know and and maxine was great to work with because um, she was never like, oh, this is my game and here's what you need to do. She was always like, you know, you're the designer of the scenario. Do what you want. Like, I'll give you feedback, obviously, but like, here's my suggestion. You can run with it or not. So she was like, here's this idea from Nate French, but you don't have to use it. Just like <laughs> if it's an idea um, and you can test it out. But in my head, as, as soon as she says that, I was like, no, that's, that's what we're doing. Like <laughs> I knew as soon as I heard that, like, that's the way to go. Like it just provides like, um, such a, obviously just a cool tactile of experience of like, you're kind of playing a card game within a card game, but also just makes the games like all kind of operate in a similar enough way that players can like pick up on, okay, we're going to do a similar thing at each game, but provides enough flexibility that you can make it feel like um, a roulette wheel or make it feel like a slot machine or make it feel like poker. I just wish we had the extra, I think it's eight cards short of being able to create <laughs> a standard deck of cards from, <laughs> yeah. the, uh, from the fortune and folly. Return to fortune and folly. We'll yeah, <laughs> there you go. Yeah, have the full set. It was funny because, um, and some other folks who had played Fortune and Folly at Arkham Knights, like our biggest like excitement moments were like winning a poker game. <laughs> and, like, <laughs> our, our biggest shout of the whole game was like when I had like I needed one card to to match the the hand I needed, and I got it. It's like, oh, we don't even need to play Arkham. Let's just play poker. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, yeah definitely found us like counting cards and stuff yes we were going through it as well just like really take it quite extremely yeah well yeah. or will will as preston just going it's like i don't care right you know i'm 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 just here to spend money who cares whether i win or not <laughs> the resources are going away at the end of the round i'm playing poker as god intended <laughs> it's definitely possible in this to take along a mystic with a lot of scrying cards and kind of mm -hmm. manipulate the gambling that way was there kind of a conscious decision of letting people do that rather than punishing it or making it i think the example i can think of is in lord of the rings with burglary tests or something you shuffle the deck beforehand or something was there a mm -hmm. conscious decision decision to allow scrying to impact it and that it be acceptable 
Yeah, yeah, there, there definitely was. Um, both with just like the card counting you mentioned and the uh, and the kind of scrying aspect for the card counting. I know I had playtesters um, ask like, well, is this something we can do? Like, do you want a rule where you like can't look at the discard pile? I'm like, no, like folks want a card count like and, and treat it like they're in the casino card counting. Like, go for <laughs> it. That's fine with me. Um, for the scrying aspect... Um, I think my thinking there was like, if people like, as a designer, I kind of usually lean, um, towards having players be able to use the tools that they have and be able to find like interesting ways to counter the scenario. Um, as long as it doesn't like completely trivialize everything. Cause I think one of the things with gambling is like, it's one aspect of the scenario, but you still got to do the rest of it, which is like actually completing the heist and um, and securing all these different tasks you need to do and fight enemies. So uh, my thinking was like if players want to invest time into becoming the best gambling um, patrons that they can be like, go for it. Um, it might take away time from the other stuff that they need to do. So, yeah. Yeah, I think left left to his own devices. Simon, who was playing Gloria and had um, Alyssa out, would have just played poker all night. And, and that would have been <laughs> Come on, Simon. We need to go and move on now. Come on. <laughs> and so, you know, you, you mentioned kind of the, the, the stealth mechanic and the, the sneaking around. Obviously, we, you know, the, the scenario reintroduces or brings back patrol from Excelsior and then kind of the, the alarm levels, very reminiscent of Dark Side of the Moon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of the Dream Eaters so. ones. And I think it's got yeah. the same mechanics and the same rules as Dark Side of the Moon, but it feels quite different in this one. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. There's mm-hmm. a significant lack of talking cats in one of these two. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the the evolution of the stealth mechanics, as I mentioned, um, as with the gambling mechanics, it started in a different place, a more complicated place. Um, I had very complicated mechanics that were essentially almost like an individualized alarm level for each guard and enemy. Um, So that maybe this guard is like really on to you, but this one isn't, which was very cool. And that's where that Metal Gear solid kind of influence was was really hitting me. Uh, But as time went on, I realized like there's even like the version that folks have now is like the most refined and streamlined version. And I still think it's like one of the more complex Arkham scenarios in terms of what you have to track and pay attention to, Um, which which is fine. That's where that's where I kind of live as a designer. Uh, But all of that is to say in its playtesting form in these original mechanics, it was even way more complex than that, (laughs) Um, having to keep track of these. And so I really was, you know, trying to figure out the best way of of trying to keep the same flavor of of like tr- remaining quiet and avoiding attention, um, but implementing it in a way that was more streamlined and simple for players to track. And in my original vision, I had considered like bringing alarm back, but I wanted to explore this more complex mechanic first and then i was like okay actually alarm might be the best the best way of doing it um because i think as a designer you always want to like bring your own babies to play and create your own things instead of bringing back an old mechanic but sometimes the old mechanic just does what you want to do um and as you mentioned like it's it's an old mechanic but it's in a new kind of context and setting 
Um, and it works a little bit differently in that once your alarm hurts, hits certain threshold, that's when enemies will, you know, pay attention to you and start engaging you. Uh, so it just solved a lot of the problems I was having in terms of, well, it still gives you the feel, this global alarm that like you're kind of attracting more and more attention over time. Um, but it's just, it's just one of those, um, lessons that I mentioned that I've learned over time as a designer that sometimes the, uh, the simpler and more abstract, um, mechanic actually is the better solution. And if you're, you're playing as the grifter, you can essentially, you know, just, I'm, I'm just going to add doomed to this test. You know, that, that, that felt mm -hmm. like Grima's influence, uh, sneaking in there <laughs> yes. to win at the card games. <laughs> Yep, Grima's always in the back of my mind. So. <laughs> Grima, take the wheel. <laughs> so when you so like an hour, we we gave it. So we 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 gave this a, a totally irrelevant and uh, meaningless difficulty rating in our last episode, uh, as we do with some things. So we, we gave it a, a three out of five. I think we settled on maybe like a low three. Um, is it because you knew it was coming out for an Arkham Knights event? Is, does that does that make did that sort of change your decision on how difficult or easy or whatever you wanted it to be in terms of like we're going to get lots of people play it in the same hall <laughs> maybe let them have a couple of hours playing it before they all uh, get killed <laughs> let's not give anyone flashbacks to assault on osgiliath yeah <laughs> yeah i i think i played a part just in the sense of um yeah, I mean, some of those experiences I've had with other kind of uh, Gen Con or special event um, scenarios where you do just get smashed right out of the gate. Like, I definitely wanted to avoid that. Like, I wanted people to actually get to play through the scenario. And even if they lose, um, hopefully it was a close loss or they got to experience a lot of the scenario before they lose. Um, and I didn't, even though it was for a special event, I didn't have it in mind that like, I want this to be like the ultimate challenge. Like for me, I, different designers approach these things in different ways. For me, the special events are for people to get together with their friends and have these like moments that they really remember more than anything, more so than like, I had this ultimate challenge and I overcome it. Like, I know there are players who really do like that. Um, and there are designers who like designing those kind of uh, event scenarios, but it's it's I tend to approach it like I like when you say like three out of five, like that's pretty much the sweet spot of where I was aiming it to be like kind of we're right in the middle there where it's enough challenge that hopefully players are not just walking all over it. But um, when playtesters started saying like, oh, we won this on the very last turn or barely squeaked out, I'm like, OK, this is about where I want it to be. We, we sort of concluded that it was a really, really nice difficulty for what it was. So it was one of those that you could play through as a group and get through on a first try. But equally, <laughs> it, it was it both fairly close. Like I think you were about to say, James. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so I, I've, I, I did two multiplayer playthroughs and in each, on each occasion we won but we won by one person staying behind to die Ooh. horribly to lots of enemy attacks <laughs> so yeah. that the hunters wouldn't hunt for a round and that would let everyone else get away. So, yeah, it did. And, and obviously if you're doing that in campaign, that would be you know, a bit a bit of a harder decision rather than going, yeah, but standalone, mm -hmm. I can just kill this character because it's not like I need to worry about the trauma. I mean, on uh, on, on the subject of, of campaign, I, I know that mm -hmm. um, if, if you play... 
play this as a as a side scenario in Scarlet Keys. It kind of has extra sort of implications. Were you given kind of a, a sneak peek at Scarlet Keys, or was that just a separate thing that Maxine did to to add on to the scenario? Yeah, good question. I was um, from early on in the process. Maxine had let me know that this scenario was going to be a little bit different than every other standalone scenario, and that it was going to have like um integration with a campaign in this case the scarlet keys um which i was really excited about because that just sounds amazing like you can play it standalone but it also has special elements if you play it as part of scarlet keys so um in general like i tend to because i do um podcasting for arkham um i tend to this like i had actually done playtesting for arkham for the the original core set design and for dunwich and then i stopped after that because i didn't want to know the future anymore <laughs> so that i could <laughs> that i could speculate without being like hmm, i wonder what's gonna come um i didn't want that foreknowledge but in this case i was doing a design thing um and because we were doing that integration i did get a peek into scarlet keys um because I really wanted to understand how uh, the villain that I created for this um, scenario fits into that story um, and how obviously there's a key in, in Fortune and Folly. Like, I needed to understand what were keys, like how do they work, <laughs> what is a key even, um, and just figuring out how this was going to fit into that story. So um, there are certain elements in Scarlet Keys um that you in terms of story that you get access to if you play fortune and folly which i won't spoil here obviously but i did read through those segments of the campaign guide for example so i understood what those were so um maxine wrote those pieces of scarlet keys obviously because scarlet keys is her baby um but i did you know see what she wrote and she would send that along to me and be like okay does this match like your vision of who this character is and what happened in fortune and folly and yeah so there's a little bit of collaboration there in that respect that's really cool because uh yeah yeah as, as the standalones go there it's very nice to be able to put them into your your regular campaigns but it does seem a bit weird when you're doing the Dunwich legacy you're halfway through <laughs> it and then all of a sudden you fly over to venice for a carnival and then pop back again <laughs> <laughs> yep <laughs> yeah and and i think on that note like scarlet keys the way it's just structured where you're, you're traveling around the world i mean in general it's just the most friendly to standalones because you don't get that weird story dissonance but yeah, having this standalone that's actually built on that was nice too. I had a moment when playing through it the first time, looking at the uh, main villain card, seeing his trait of Cotier or whatever the Coterie. word is for the mm -hmm. yeah, and just like thinking, oh my gosh, like that's how it connects to it all. He's, he's not just <laughs> a bad guy running the casino. He's he's part of it all. Yeah, and it was just very satisfying from just reading one trait. Like whoa. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, for sure. And so, and one of the things people will see when they play Fortune and Folly is like the intro is a little bit different depending on whether you're playing it as part of Scarlet Keys or not, because it just, the, for the investigators, this may just be a one off heist or it may be part of the bigger Scarlet mm -hmm. Keys story. So, yeah, I just had to tweak the story a little bit there differently there as well. I saw that that was a thing, but I managed to stay strong and not read the <laughs> if you're playing this as part of Scarlet Keys. Yep. Although we we finished up our our Edge of the Earth campaign with a with a couple of friends on uh, last Friday actually, 
And I think my wife gets a bit fed up because she doesn't pay that much attention to kind of the, the mm. meta picture when we're when we're playing. So, you know, we're there at the end of Edge of the Earth going, oh, so did, did we get the best resolution? Oh, no, we needed to have done, done that interaction between this mm. thing. And we got to the end, and she's just like, for our next campaign, can we just do the new box that nobody's played? And that way I won't have to sit here trying to work out what you three are talking about when you say because <laughs> of this resolution or that one. But I'm now slightly worried because we, like, it, it's people we meet up with about once a month. It's like, I'm not sure I want my blind playthrough of Scarlet Keys to take till September mm. and kind of put an embargo on the rest of the box. <laughs> right. I have to, yeah, squash the sessions up a bit. Me and Will used to play all of the campaigns the first time together and yeah since uh i've had a kid it's become a lot harder to make that happen so will has given me consent to play scarlet keys on my own and i'm very glad for that <laughs> but yeah <laughs> it wasn't too bad at the beginning when it was like when it was released every couple of months because you weren't having to wait around so much so you were Ooh. it was a game every few months and it was fine and then yeah edge of the earth arrived about the time that you that you had uh, you had finn so yeah that that was um yeah i apologize for well, I'm not going to apologise. It's your fault entirely. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but we've got... Um, so we've just got the one copy of Fortune and Folly between us that we've been kind of uh, having a go with separately. And now mm. that it is... We've, we're going to all be getting Scarlet Keys at the same time on Friday and we're probably going to want to integrate that. We'll have to see who can fight over to put it in their campaign first. See, <laughs> so, yeah, I think we just had a few sort of... Kind of more general thematic questions. What what music mm-hmm. would you recommend players listen to while playing Fortune and Folly? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, I mean, in terms of what I use to design it, um, I I listen to a lot of um, what's called like dark jazz music. Like if you just look up dark jazz on Spotify, there's lots of playlists for that, which as it you might imagine it it's it's jazz music but with darker tones um i'm trying to think of what else would be appropriate for um like <laughs> there's certain music that i listen to that's not necessarily like thematic to it but i just like um so so for example there's one album um <clears throat> uh by uh mars volta who people might be uh familiar with um one of their uh, original albums deloused in the comatorium which doesn't really have anything thematic to do with the scenario but if players want to be in a similar headspace as to i was when i designed it that, that would be the the place to go um and there's one particular track in there that that's very um relevant to the scenario that i'll leave players to figure out which one it is <laughs> It'll be obvious once you listen through. <laughs> I'll definitely be doing that when I'm next playing. Then, yeah. <laughs> if anyone wants a, a cinematic uh, recommendation, I, I would also recommend checking out Quentin, it tells me, is now a 20-year-old film. But if anyone's ever seen Intacto, uh, it was a uh, Spanish-language film back in 2001, and it's this whole it's this whole kind of thing of people who can steal other people's luck and manipulate luck and mm. yeah, high stakes games based around all this kind of thing. So yeah, again, that was yeah something it, it kind of well, a film I've not seen in twenty years, and it kind of suddenly brought it back playing the game and kind of reading some of the um, some of the hints we get about the MacGuffin, the name of which has completely escaped me. Um, the mm-hmm. key. The Wellspring of Fortune. Wellspring, yeah. yes. Thank you. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, obvi- obviously there's, like, the the movies that people immediately associate, like Ocean's Eleven. Like, I definitely had that on at times when I was designing. Uh, <laughs> and there, there are a, a couple of uh, direct nods to that, of course. Um, uh, what's the recent James Bond one that was set in Monte Carlo? Is that Casino Royale? I believe so. Um, yeah, yeah, that was the first one with the most recent actor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I watched that one a bit just to get a, f- even though it's like in more modern times. Obviously, getting a feeling for Monte Carlo. Uh, <laughs> this is like a total random reference, but I'm a I'm a huge um, Star Trek nerd. But there's a Deep Space Nine episode where it's like Doctor Bashir goes into the holodeck and it's like a whole James Bond escapade. But there's a part in a casino where they're playing like Baccarat, and so <laughs> it's a little bit of an influence for me. I had to learn the rules for Baccarat, by the way, to design the Baccarat location. <laughs> so that was new for me. Is is that the episode where he has to let Cisco destroy the world because if he, like, you know, yes. if he doesn't let yeah. the villain win, he won't have enough time to unprogram whatever's wrong with the Hollow Suite. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's the one. See, I'm 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 now really wishing we got a we had a Vic Fontaine uh, bystander asset in the, uh, in the scenario. <laughs> yeah, there it's it's and, and another one for the return a, to box. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> I mean, there's a there's a few things like like I mentioned. I think the hardest part of designing um, Fortune and Folly um, in any scenario really is cutting things. Um, so obviously I had to like refine the mechanics, but card space is just a real thing that you discover, um, especially when you're designing an official scenario versus a custom scenario. Like when you design a custom scenario, as many people do, I design it on uh, using the Strange Eons program. Um, and strange eons will just keep shrinking the font as much as you want <laughs> till the end of time. Like you can fit as much text as you want. Um, but now I'm doing the real thing, designing an official cards. Um, so Maxine would just let me know, like, here's the actual amount of text you can fit on a card and be reasonable. And so, yeah, there were quite a few cards and, um, locations that I had to cut down in most cases, um, for the better, I think just finding like a more succinct or concise way to frame, uh, an effect. Uh, but there were a few effects that I just had to completely cut that uh, yeah, I'm sad about, but that's just part of design. I think from hearing Maxine's interviews on other podcasts, she's quite often saying when that happens, she like puts it in a folder or something <laughs> and then can use it in a later scenario. So there's a luxury of having consistent scenarios to release that right. you can <laughs> always have that back burner. But yeah, I don't know, hold on to it for whenever, whatever comes up mm-hmm. in the future for you. Yeah. <laughs> So did you get to like uh, for inspiration? Did you did you get to manage to wangle a, a flight over to Monaco then and have a wander around the casino just to, <laughs> just to really soak it unfortunately, all up? Unfortunately, unfortunately, no. But I, I would like to visit now now that I've designed a whole scenario, though. a fictional casino, of course. But yeah, yeah, it would be fun to visit. It's a yeah, amazing. Uh, country city, whatever it is, principality, <laughs> amazing thing to walk around. <laughs> And we went into one of the casinos there as well, and it wasn't quite what we imagined of a casino. It was a lot of like being intimidated by how expensive all these card tables sure. were, and then <laughs> yeah. being confused at how many like electronic machines and just like kind of those kind of gambling machines there. But uh, yeah, if it, for the rest of the principality or whatever, 
Um, it's a yeah, amazing place to visit. Especially if you've been to your Formula One and you can uh, walk the track at the right time of year. <laughs> right. We did, well, we got the bus that went the wrong way around the circuit, but yeah, that's what we did. <laughs> <laughs> Some 10 minute lap of Monaco. <laughs> well, as mentioned in the intro, this is uh, technically a podcast about uh, about all three of the uh, the the co-op LCGs from uh, from Fantasy Flight. You, you talked a bit about um, some of your champions play uh, at the start, but you know if you uh, if FFG were to approach you and say you can design any Marvel hero you like for for champions, who who, who do you think you'd pick? Whew. That's a tough one. Um, I will say is just kind of a few caveats. Like Marvel is the game I've played the least of the three. Um, and also in terms of theme, like Marvel is probably the one I'm least familiar with. Like I live and breathe Tolkien. Um, I'm not necessarily a huge Lovecraft fan, but I'm a huge Arkham Files fan. And so I know that world really well. Um, and Marvel, obviously I do know from like MCU stuff, um, but I haven't, uh kept up with the comics over the years um other than like there was a period of time um when i was younger and this would have been like early to mid 90s um where i read uh comics and did keep up with comics and so some of my favorites back then were um <clears throat> x-men of course because he wasn't an x-men fan back then um excalibur uh and uh, let's see what else um, and the other big one for me was Silver Surfer. So with that being in mind, I'd say I'd probably pick Silver Surfer to design. I don't know what the design would be, but that's probably who I would pick. Well, uh, hopefully we'll uh, see that in uh, in a couple of years alongside the, the much-demanded massive multiplayer Galactus scenario for Gen Con. <laughs> yeah, that would be awesome. <laughs> okay. I, I don't see how else you do Galactus for the game. Yeah. Yeah, I think you would. They have still to. haven't had a massive multiplayer for Marvel yet, have they? No, no, yeah. like no they've they, they, they've done a few sort of fan fan variants. Um, so, um, Ian, I don't know if you're familiar with the Kang scenario, but um, mm. basically, it works a bit like Foundations of Stone, where you, you do the first stage together and then you get split up and you get sent off to different points in time and the multiverse to fight different versions of Kang. And there's a thing in the comics called the Council of a Hundred Kangs. So they created a hundred different Kangs that people could play against over the weekend. So like there's <laughs> there's Kang Fulu and uh, I can't remember, but yeah, there's loads. Of them. It was um, that's awesome. Uh, uh, Wandering Took, I can't remember his real name, Mike uh, from Critical Encounters. I think he was was kind of behind a lot of that stuff. But yeah, there's been been various unofficial bits, but we've. But we're yet to see a, a, an official mm. multiplayer for that. Cool, Mike. I think you were responsible for this last question. Yeah, if uh, no one's got anything else on the games themselves, I was. Uh, uh, as I briefly mentioned earlier, we're planning our first Iron Man as a group of four for early next year. I know Mythos Busters have done a fair few of them now at this point. What would you have any advice for us doing our first four-player Iron Man? <sighs> what do we need a heads up on? <laughs> how many cans of energy drink should we bring 
I mean, more than anything, I would say just as much of the um, thinking that you can front load before the actual Iron Man in terms of preparing your path and deck builds and all of that. Because um, when it comes time to do uh, actual Iron Man, your brain turns to jelly about halfway through and uh, you have about en- enough mental bandwidth to just play the game. So <laughs> any, <laughs> any choices and plans you have made in advance is, is usually what I would recommend. But uh, it's it's so fun. It's definitely an experience. I do, I do feel we may have made a poor decision picking Innsmouth as our first. I feel it's going to be yeah, <laughs> going to be quite complicated. <sighs> Yeah, I. It's an interesting one. I feel like my main worry with Insmith, I as it often is. Well, I'll say this: the other challenge with Iron Man is um, just the time it takes, and it depends on where you play it. So, like if you're put, like usually we're playing it at uh, the Game Center over in Minnesota, and so we're bounded by when the place actually closes. Like we have to finish by then. Um, but during the years of COVID, obviously, we're doing it online so we could do it as long as we wanted. Um, but that's actually dangerous because our Circle Undone Iron Man went 17 hours, <laughs> which I'm still not sure how we survived that. Um, so all that's to say, I, I'm just wondering how long Insmith is going to be. Like, I feel like a few of the scenarios are on the longer side. So, yeah, just figuring out, like, the end... I'm also trying to remember one of the things we did. The funny part of Circle Undone, too, is it went 17 hours and we still took the early route out of a few scenarios. Because <laughs> there's a few <laughs> scenarios in that campaign where you can just kind of like do a few things and then resign. I mean, did did you go Team Lodge and just stop after six scenarios? <laughs> <laughs> no, we didn't do that. <laughs> but that would be the easiest route. But yeah, I, I think figuring out the time cadence of like, are there certain scenarios where you can like cut out early if need be? And I'm trying to remember. If, I don't feel like there's a ton in Insmith where you can do that. There's probably a few. I think there's a turn one resign for the uh, lighthouse scenario, but mm. from what I'm looking at, that that's a looks like a pretty important one to actually play yeah. all the way through. You need the diving <laughs> yeah. suit, but yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I guess uh, for things like in too deep, you could just ignore the keys and just rush for the exit. Run, run. <laughs> yeah, just run. Yeah. Yeah, it's figuring out those places where it's you actually need to push your luck versus where you can just just finish the scenario. Yeah. Or, or I just go back to my plan of bringing barricade Luke for horror in high gear. <laughs> <laughs> there just you go. <laughs> yeah, it's funny because one of the things we've done with our Mythos Busters Iron Man is we kind of have an official rule that once someone of us uses an investigator, we can't use them for future Iron Man. So we've kind of have it in our head, like, when are we going to pull out the Luke button? Like, when are we going <laughs> to use Luke? And, I, and I'm pretty sure Scott is planning on using Luke for Ensmith, so there'll probably be some shenanigans there. Yeah. I think we've all gone through at least one investigator now for trying to pick who we're going for. I think we all had our first choices, like, I'm really excited about this investigator, and then hearing more and more about how you kind of got to be able to just work on autopilot almost for the whole day thinking, hmm, maybe this investigator is too complicated. Maybe I need to pick someone simpler. Let's give someone else. Yeah. So Luke sounds quite brave from that point of view. <laughs> yeah, I think if 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 anyone ever tried to do um, one of those Mandy builds for Iron Man where you're just constantly searching for the deck, we might need to veto them because <laughs> that would double the length of the campaign. <laughs> 
Now I'm trying to think of a Mandy build that doesn't do that. How would yeah, that work? true. <laughs> That's just Mandy. <laughs> That's just a Mandy build. You have to get special gloves right just to stop the paper cuts and things just by the end of the day of having like <laughs> shuffled that many cards that many times. Yeah. <laughs> for sure. Cool. Well, I think that's probably about it for our, our main section. Thanks uh, thanks very much for your time. We're going to move on now to uh, an entirely uh, original and uh, totally non-derivative section we call uh, Alter Ego Actions, <laughs> uh, which is just a, you know, just a chance for, for each of us to, to share a recommendation, anything else they've been uh, been up to. Um, yeah, Ian, do you, do you have any uh, non, non-LCG excitement in your life you'd like to share or recommend to people? Um, I think the most recent thing is a video game I've been playing, which is uh, Midnight Suns, uh, Marvel Midnight Suns. Um, so it's like a kind of turn-based tactical combat game using card play, like you have a hand of cards to drive it. So that's usually like right in my wheelhouse. Like there's cards, there's like turn-based, it's basically a board game. So <laughs> I'm having a lot of fun with that one. And then there's aspects to the game where it's like... Um, back at base and you're doing like social relationship building stuff which i actually tend to enjoy in games as well so pretty much is hitting a lot of buttons for me so that one's been fun i'm not too far into it yet though i think maybe like one to two hours in so we'll see how it goes from there so is that um is that something we you need online opponents or is it just you against the ai it's just you against the ai yeah single player game yeah might might have to check that out. That I'm I'm not a huge computer gamer, mostly because I spend my working life staring at this screen from mm-hmm. this distance. Yeah. <laughs> don't necessarily want to do it in the evening, but that that does sound pretty tempting. Yeah, it's a fun one. Ooh, Mike, how about you? Um, I normally try and take the opportunity of alter ego actions to talk about less mainstream stuff, but. Everything that's not LCG for me at the moment is the newest Pokemon game, so I've just been completely absorbed by that. It's They've been releasing those games for like 25 years, I think it is now, and I've been on and off the franchise, and I think this is actually the first time I've been interested in the franchise at the release of one of the new games, and yeah, it's completely taken over all my time, just completely obsessed with that, so... <laughs> It's it's it follows a similar template to the other ones if you've played any of them, but uh, it's a bit more of an they've got an open world element to this now. I think kind of I wouldn't be surprised taking if it takes a lot of inspiration from like Breath of the Wild and things like that. They've decided to go this route, but uh, it's also just catching Pokemon monsters. So yeah, <laughs> that's been my time. Don't worry, uh, you will. What have you been up to? Um, I don't know. Lots of work. Um, housework. Uh, I, I, weirdly, this week I've, um, well, today I suppose is where I started it. But I think Halloween's finally caught it with me, and I've started to watch them. Started to want to watch some horror films. Um, so, but like very specifically sci-fi horror films. I don't know whether it's because I've been like, reading a lot of, um, like I say, the Horus Heresy books and stuff. So lots of forty k and all that sort of stuff. But yeah, so today, this afternoon, I, I dropped some friends off at the train station. Then I went, well, I've got four hours till we're doing something this evening. I'll put on Event Horizon and then um, yeah. <laughs> so watch that. Uh, then I watched the the Cloverfield Paradox, which is fine. But I was like, yeah, okay. There's a few films. There's a few films in here. So I've started to create a bit of a list that that probably ends with aliens, just to you know end it on the on the high note. So, yeah. Have you been wanting to watch the thing at all since playing Edge of the Earth? 
Oh, that'd be a good one. I will add that to the list. I think that's <laughs> been one that's been, yeah, I've been thinking about. It'd be good to watch again. Yeah. And I hate horror films, so that says a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Very specifically. Like the one, there's one that I really like that I, I, I don't think, I don't recall it ever because I keep up with quite, like a film podcast and read the Empire magazines and stuff. I don't ever recall Underwater getting any sort of press when it was released. And it's sort of about an under underwater base at the bottom of the ocean where they're doing something. And it's got Kirsten Stewart in. Um, and the picture arrived one day on Disney Plus or whatever it was. So I went, oh, I'll watch that. And I really, really enjoyed it. And it's kind of maybe sort of mythos-based-ish. Mm. Don't know, um, but yeah, a, a completely under the radar film that's quite good. So I'll I'll, I'll promote that because that's on my list as well somewhere. Oh, speaking of mythos stuff, I'm not promoting this because I haven't actually seen it. But has anyone seen the um, Cabinet of Curiosities stuff on Netflix? Not yet. I've seen the picture and went ah, and that's as far as I went. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, so yeah, I'll, I'll I'll talk about something I have actually seen rather than that fairly pointless uh, interjection. <laughs> I'm, I'm aware that I'm a few years late to this, but I'd I'd finished, then whatever I was watching, I was was bored one day. I think I had a headache, couldn't do any real work, and so I thought I've heard the Expanse is meant to be quite good. Let's let's try that. And yeah, as as someone who doesn't really watch much TV, I think I watched the whole of the first three series in in the course of November. So um, yeah, would <laughs> would definitely recommend that if if people haven't seen it. It's it's good. Um, yeah, sort of. I say it's hard sci-fi insofar as what I normally watch is Star Trek, um, <laughs> and you know, here they actually think about things like gravity and the availability of water, um, but also sentient alien bacteria or something like that. So, have you read the novels as well? Have I, you got I haven't. That comparison? Um, no, so. I'm, Simon has. Um, Simon tells me that the novels spend a surprising amount of time talking about the impact of G-force on your testicles. That's that's the only thing I've been told about the novels. <laughs> <laughs> that's an interesting review, yeah. You sure he's reading the same book? There, yes. <laughs> I mean, it is Simon, so who knows? <laughs> cool. Well, um, yeah. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Thanks again to Ian. Uh, for joining us. Ian, if people want to, to hear more from you, uh, where or, or how can they, they find your your content or, or you yourself on social media? Sure. I, I think the biggest thing is uh, through the Mythos Busters podcast. Uh, you can find us on Twitter, of course. Uh, you can find us on our Discord channel um, and Facebook. And then we have mythosbusters.com. So I, th- I think that's the the main place to uh, get access to me and my voice. <laughs> Do you do you still post stuff on on the Mythos Busters site apart from the the podcast episodes? Because I've not looked in years. Not really. For a while, we were having um, people um, publish articles, but we've kind of moved away from that in t- uh, over time. Not that we wouldn't do it again, but yeah, it's mostly just the episodes these days. Um, we do have a section on there where I have my own project where I'm convinced it's only for me and maybe a two other people. <laughs> but <laughs> I like constructing these like Spotify playlists for each investigator of like what I think they would listen to in their car if they were alive now. Um, so I have one for each investigator. So there's a section for that. There's a section for Iron Man um, and then a section for what else i think whenever we run our uh, march to madness competition which is where um 
folks kind of vote on investigator battles, like pitting investigators against each other. So we haven't run one of those for a while, but there should be another one coming up soonish. That's awesome. I like that. And uh, Will, if Simon's not here, you can uh, tell people how they can get in touch with us. I can indeed. So you can listen to all of our episodes or find any of the links or descriptions that we may or may not mention about our episodes at tcgcoop.design.blog. Um, you can email us if you want to get in touch at tcgcoop at gmail.com. We are on Twitter at, at Card Cooperative and we are on Facebook as The Card Game Cooperative. Uh, if you're on Discord, you can find our Discord. Um, I think it's Card Cooperative, the Card Cooperative, Card Game Cooperative, one of the three. Or you can find uh, James and he'll invite you. It's probably the easiest way, yep. Yeah, um, so, yeah I am Mighty Jim's 6786, uh, but if you find someone on an LCG server called Mighty Jim, it's probably me, so just say <laughs> hi. <laughs> Uh, and if you've found the link for this from Reddit, you've probably found it from Michael, who is on there at... Uh, I'm underscore Eric the Cleric, and probably for the first time in like six or seven episodes, I'm actually on Reddit again and actively doing stuff, not just lurking. So, yeah, happy <laughs> to say hi. <laughs> uh, and that's it. That's that's all our communications. Excellent. Or pigeon post. No, this is strikes. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> on that cheery Sorry, note, no, no, no. Uh, have a good Christmas, everyone, and we'll uh, we'll speak to you in 2023. Merry Christmas! Bye bye. Happy New Year's. Happy holidays. All the good stuff. <laughs> <laughs>